Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble presents Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Florida History in Story and Song, Friday, August 20th and Saturday, August 21st at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Most people know about the Wild West and the OK Corral and Doc Holliday and all that stuff, but they don't know about, you know, the Cracker Trail or Bone Mizell or people that were just, just every bit as colorful as the people you'd find out west. Long before Gloria Estefan built a luxury hotel in Vero Beach, it was the site of Taylortown. There was nothing across the street from Taylortown. It was just palmettos. And we'll visit the Dudley Farm in North Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble has created a musical and dramatic presentation celebrating Florida's cracker culture. The 90-minute production, called Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, features songs and stories evocative of Florida pioneer life of the 1800s and early 1900s. Ruby Alba plays guitar and sings in this production. She's a fourth-generation Floridian whose ancestors lived the cracker lifestyle. My grandmother's parents lived in the central Florida area. They had some land and some cattle, true Florida crackers, um, between the area of Holopaw and Kenansville. And that's where my grandmother was raised and where she uh, learned all about what it took to crack the whip and do what you needed to do like the Florida crackers all over have learned how to do. Um, she was uh, a very, very sturdy pioneer woman. Uh, I never wanted to tangle with her because I felt like she could whip her weight in wildcats and then some. Alba's grandparents made a living from agricultural work and by selling the hides of various animals. When my mother was a young child, she and my granny were living in West Melbourne at the time, and they peeled cypress poles for a penny apiece. Um, and they also raised chickens and sold the eggs. Uh, but my uh, mother and my granny were pretty much self-sustaining because my grandpa, Oscar, was a hunter and fisherman. He was gone more than he was home. He spent his entire life and built his livelihood around the deer, fish, alligators, 
anything that he could hunt and bring home and tan the hides. My mother used to be absolutely thrilled when he would come rehart turn home from a trip because she would get to help him with tanning the hides and she became quite proficient at being able to stretch the hides out in the Florida sun and stretch them just the right amount so that she didn't stretch a hole in them because my grandpa Oscar would say, girly, we can't have them with holes because they won't sell for enough money. So she had to be very careful and learn the craft at her daddy's knee and be able to do exactly the way he showed her how to do it. While her parents were raised in a cracker household, Abba says that as adults they got away from that lifestyle, but Abba herself still remembers growing up in what was once rural Florida. By the time my parents uh, got married and I came into being and my brothers and sisters, we kind of got away from that a little bit. Um, but I remember hearing my mom telling the stories that uh, she and Granny um, had done. Uh, my granny was actually a charter member, um, helped to build a little church down in West Melbourne and was a charter member there and mom played the piano and so they had roots in that area that just went completely down beyond where you can imagine roots would go. Um, my uh, aunts and uncles all kind of lived on the same street and uh, it was just one big long plot divided up and each person had a home and that's that was what I remember growing up as a child so by then West Melbourne had started to grow a little bit and it was still just a small two-lane highway coming down 192 and when you got to the edge out there where the interstate is now there wasn't much of a road between there and Orlando and when we would make trips between the two places we kind of rode over what seemed like a washboard, and it was an all-day trip to Orlando. You didn't get to just go there and come back quick like we do now. It was an all-day trip. We started before daylight, and we washboarded all the way to Orlando, and we washboarded back and got back after dark. Ruby Alba plays guitar and sings in the production Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Well, the program today uh, started out with a little bit of silliness that we were on the ocean and we were uh, uh, by the sea, by the sea, and doing a little bit of silliness there. And then we got into a, a, a little bit more serious things where uh, we told a little bit about the cracker history and, you know, it's mosquitoes, alligators, and determination. There were a lot of mosquitoes. Back then, there were a lot of alligators, but I'm going to tell you what, the biggest letters in that whole sentence is determination, and I know for a positive fact that from listening to the stories at my granny's knee and what they did back then, that that determination had to go clean to the bone for them to be able to do the things that they did and survive in this country as wild as it was back then. Lady Gail Ryan is director of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble, the group staging Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Raised in Miami, Ryan freely admits that until recently she did not have much respect for cracker culture. I felt that they were dumb, <laughs> quite frankly, and, and didn't have any kind of culture. And that's being raised in Miami with the palmettos and the alligators and the the uh, coral snakes and rattlesnakes and I went to New York and saw what New York was and I sure didn't want to be a cracker not knowing something so uh, 
so I grew up with the idea that they were dumb. <laughs> and when they asked me to do this for the library, I was upset. Uh, and I said, you know, I am a Florida-born, I am not a cracker. And she says, it's okay, you're going to find out something about it. And the more I looked, the more I realized that that Miami was an easier place to settle, was further away, but it was an easier place. But what they went through here in the middle part of Florida was hell. And I don't know how they ever did it. I have no idea. Because it was bad enough when we were young, and we, you know, was was in the 29, 30, and 31. Um, but... It, but we still had it easier um, than they had in the middle part. They didn't have lights. They, their wells were hard to get. They had to go down to the creeks to get the water. And I learned what I found out is that they had ingenuity. They could do anything and fix anything. But they weren't interested particularly in the gold, which I unfortunately must say I, I was in being in Miami. I, I sort of let the glitter and the glitz um, spoil not spoil me, but make me think that that was better than being a real homebody. But since that time, I've really changed my mind um, that it was an unbelievable culture. While doing research to develop the Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination program, Ryan developed an appreciation for the resourcefulness of Florida pioneers. I must say that the library system in Florida is absolutely unbelievable. I called the library and I said, send me every book you can about early Florida. And they, they some something like 25 books and I began to going through them and then I began to choose stories and then I called on my my storytellers who are all I'm blessed they're all super intelligent people and love to read and so they were the ones that began I said how about this how about this how about this do you like this story and once they like a story then I insist that they do research and I tried to read as much as I could. I've been reading since last September on Florida about Florida and its history and it's been exciting. Lizzie Seal is a Florida transplant who tells some of the stories in this Cracker Culture program. Seal says that she's learned a lot by studying Cracker stories and music. I had always uh, thought of it as being, uh, not in a bad way, backwoods. Um, my family, you know, my father's family is from uh, eastern Tennessee, so I'm used to, uh, you know, what, what most people would look down upon as being backwoods culture, or these people don't know anything. So I, I knew that that was sort of the feeling of the crackers was that oh they were they don't know what they're doing we we've got a better idea of how we're gonna get this done um, but I, I didn't realize that um, there was such a frontier um, I knew that there were settlers and things like that but I didn't realize it was quite such a, a for lack of a better term wild west sort of uh, 
area for a while, a lot of gunfights, and uh, and I uh, had known about the cattle somewhat, but I had no idea of the, the length of the, the drive and all the things that they had to deal with and how it was so much so much more difficult than the things that they would have had to have faced out west. Yes, most people know about the Wild West and the OK Corral and Doc Holiday and all that stuff, but they don't know about, you know, the Cracker Trail or Bone Mizell or people that were just, just every bit as colorful as the people you'd find out west. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble has added mosquitoes, alligators, and determination to their repertory, a 90-minute musical and dramatic celebration of cracker culture. You can see performances of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, Friday, August 20th and Saturday, August 21st at 7 p.m. Reservations are required. For tickets, call 321-676-0697. That's 321-676-0697. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, check our calendar of upcoming events, and much more. While you're there, please take a moment to hit the Join Now button and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Singer Gloria Estefan has built a luxury hotel in Vero Beach. As Janie Gould reports, that hotel is on the site of what used to be called Taylortown. Seven decades before Gloria Estefan built her $50 million oceanfront hotel in Vero Beach, a local businessman bought the same land for taxes. 
It was in the early years of the Great Depression. S.B. Taylor built four beach cottages and a bathhouse, and he named the place Taylortown. Mary Young Johnson of Vero Beach is his daughter. There was nothing across the street from Taylortown. It was just Palmettos. And that's Ocean Drive we're talking about, Central Beach District. Yeah, across Ocean Drive, which was not much of a road, just shell road. There were no shops of any kind. You could get an ice cream cone up at the um, Ocean Grill, which was called something else then. The Bucket of Blood is what we called it, and I don't know why. Taylortown was home to Navy officers stationed in Vero Beach during World War II. After the war, Mary Johnson and her late husband, Jim Young, would live in one of the cottages for a month each summer. While Young worked in town during the day, Mary enjoyed the beach and the cottage with their son, also named Jim. He was just a little fellow then. He was only about four or five. I can still remember sitting and reading to him in the living room. We had the cottage right up on the beach. There were two of them on the beach and two of them sort of halfway behind. They still could see the ocean. When you say on the beach, they were right next to the dune. Right, yes. Well, practically on top of the dune. And then there was one right behind me that was rented, but the other two were vacant. In the summertime, there weren't too many people came to Vero Beach. In fact, there weren't a whole lot of people came to Vero Beach in the wintertime just for fun. I mean, it wasn't a big tourist place. That developed rather rapidly, though. <laughs> that did change. Yes, it changed. So what happened to Taylortown? I can't remember the exact time, but it must have been the early 50s, late 40s. Daddy added a swimming pool, for one thing, and then he built a two-story motel partway on Ocean Drive and went partway back toward the beach. The Seahorse Inn became a landmark in Vero's growing Central Beach. S.B. Taylor hired a couple to run the hotel where the amenities were simple or non-existent. There were no telephones, no TVs, and they used to have cookouts, and they just made everybody very comfortable. And people came to get away. It was very successful, winter and summer. After 21 years, the couple managing the Seahorse Inn decided to retire, and things changed. S.B. Taylor had died, and his widow eventually sold the property to a motel chain. They just leveled the property. They tore down everything, rebuilt. The cottages and everything, mm -hmm. gone. Everything. Later, the site became home to the Palm Court Hotel, but it was severely damaged by hurricanes in 2004. Gloria and Emilio Estefan bought the property, and last year they opened the luxury hotel, the Costa de Este Beach Resort. S.B. Taylor would not be the least bit surprised to see what the Taylortown site has become. His daughter is sure of that. He knew the minute he came to Vero Beach that he should buy oceanfront property, that it was someday going to be very valuable. So he was very prescient. He had a feeling about the future of the community. Well, I was born in Atlantic City on the shore of New Jersey, and he'd always been aware that beachfront property is very valuable. If it's not valuable right this minute, it's going to be. He bought what he was able to. He did have it, $500. That was a lot of money then. Down on uh, the property just north of what is now the Holiday Inn, but he couldn't come up with the money to buy it, but he wanted it. So, no, Daddy would not be surprised at what's there now. Any traces of Taylortown remaining? No, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Mary Young Johnson, a musician and former church organist in Vero Beach, is 96. She plays bridge six days a week. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
While some people have a romantic notion of getting back to the land, almost anyone who grew up on a working farm remembers it as being very hard work. Bill Dudley takes us to an authentic pioneer farm where the goal is to educate Floridians about a way of life long past. People had time to enjoy each other, and we would maybe eat supper with a neighbor one week, and the next week they would come and eat with us. It, it was a wonderful life. You had time to visit and to appreciate your neighbors. Jean Ryan remembers growing up in rural North Florida. On this December afternoon, she and several hundred others are gathered a few miles west of Gainesville at a one-of-a-kind Florida farm with its croplands, gardens, fruit trees, and the original 19th century buildings made from the wood of long-leaf pines cut to clear the land. Here, three generations of one family lived and died. It was established before the Civil War by Captain P.B.H. Dudley about 1859 with a land grant. So the grandfather established the farm and his son carried it on and put together the farm that you see here today. The Park Service acquired the Dudley Farm in the 1980s, and although Sally Morrison's official title is Park Ranger, she's worked here for over a decade as a historian, a researcher, and an interpreter. But what was once open farmland today is rapidly being absorbed by Gainesville's sprawling western suburbs. Today we have 330 of the original acres, which gives us enough to really support a farm and to provide buffers from the modern encroachment. We'll soon be a little island in the middle of suburbia, and so it's even more important that the traditions and the early culture of Florida carries on as it's being destroyed and lost. This is a special day on the farm. It's the yearly sugar cane grinding celebration. There'll be a pie auction, a community dinner under the oak trees, and all-day demonstrations of activities largely unknown to modern-day Floridians. The juice squeezed from the sugar cane stalks by this mule-powered cane grinder is poured into a 60-gallon iron cauldron presided over by neighbor Hubert Davis. We put this in here and you notice we're firing it up pretty heavy and uh, the impurities in the juice will come to the top and we'll skim it all off and, and when we get all of that off and get it clean then we'll fire it up real heavy and start boiling it. That way you're boiling the, the moisture out of it. And it takes about four hours. Twenty years ago Davis began reviving the practice of grinding cane for syrup. Now he's teaching his craft to his grandson. It's all done, as he puts it, simply to keep an old tradition from dying. As long as I can remember, people would gather together on Thanksgiving and different days and, and have a cane grinding and a eat out and just, just have a big time. It was a sort of a socializing thing, you know, where everybody got together and socialized and, and enjoyed it. Nearby, Les Jacobson demonstrates the art of shaving cypress shakes for roofing. Another example of a set of skills and knowledge that may soon be extinct. When the water run down, see all these little grooves? The water would run down these grooves instead of running over to the sides and getting up under here. Much of the information about the daily workings of the farm came from the last of the family's third generation, Miss Myrtle Dudley, who died in 1994. 
Sally Morrison spent 10 years talking to Miss Myrtle, collecting stories and documenting farm ways. She was born on this farm in 1901. She lived here all her life and died on the farm in the same room where she was born. And the continuity is an issue here, the continuity of, of living in one place for so long and knowing it so intimately and the, the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from that. Don't push it. Right? It, uh, it's a lot easier to do. Just pull it. That's all you do is pull it. The sense of community that's established by people coming and, and being a part. You see the little boy and the grandfather with a cross-cut saw. The older man is teaching the younger. Most children don't even think about the things that they buy at the store, the possibility of them being handmade. Making syrup is a tradition that's long been a part of Florida, and the man who's making it today, he has four generations of his family, and then it brings together a community of people like this. I used to come home from school, instead of being able to go out and play, I had to get on the horse and ride it over to where my dad was and go to work while I went by the other kids playing baseball and things. Like 81-year-old family member Harvey Garland, most rural Floridians remember farming as a life of long hours and hard work. Someday soon, when the Dudley Farm is open to the public, Sally Morrison hopes visitors will be able to appreciate the values of the farming culture of Florida. I'd say we're carrying them on, the traditions and the values of early pioneers. They uh, had to survive, so they learned about sustainability and learned to be thrifty. Well, I think it's important for the young people to know about it from the standpoint, you know, it's just I think if you grew up on a farm, that's the best thing that could happen to you. I think this is a good place to start, really. One more round, Carl. I'm Bill Dudley, no relation to the Farm family. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.